Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, my name is Stuart Miles and welcome to the Pocket Podcast. This week, Pocket Rick Henderson is here to talk all things Sony PlayStation 5 following the big games reveal last week. And with the news that Bose is pulling out of the augmented reality market and the worry of industry unicorn Magic Leap's imminent downfall, it's fitting that I recently interviewed BAFTA Games Committee member Andrew Ilya about the future of AR and AR glasses and what's in store for the future. And if that wasn't enough to excite, Cam Bunton joins us to tell us how he's been getting on with the latest smart Casio G-Shock watch. Can it deliver a modern approach without forgetting its heritage? Stay tuned to find out. But first, back to you, Rick. What's new with the PS5? Well, we actually got to not only see uh, a whole selection of games at a uh, Future of Gaming event that was previously delayed, but we uh, we finally got it. Um, but more excitingly is that dun, dun, we also, also got to see the PlayStation 5, and it looks like a Stormtrooper who's had his head squished. We've had a chance now to, to, sort, to sort of process the information that we came out. And I think one of the questions I have is just how big is the new PlayStation 5? It looks mammoth. Um, now, when when the design was first revealed, um, people held it up against the Xbox Series X, which essentially the Xbox Series X looks like a, a box of black magic chocolates. Um, it's just a, a you know. It, does, a, a, it looks to me like a fridge. Yeah, it's just a lump. Basically, but um, but but it, a lump with a purpose, you know, it's to dissipate the heat out the top. The PlayStation Five, on the other hand, is an a, a beautifully crafted and well designed looking thing. However, when people actually looked into it further, um, uh, that we don't have specifications, for example, on the measurements and the weight of it. Um, but when people looked into the size of the disc tray, now a disc tray will always be the same size because yeah. it has to hold a disc. Um, and when people looked at the slot, they then um, resized it in Photoshop to uh, to compare against other games consoles of the past. And it is huge. It is easily the largest games console that anybody has ever released. It is, I would say, almost twice as big on its end as the PlayStation 2, for example. That's crazy. It's now, a mammoth machine. I'm not even now, sure how I would fit it under my telly. I was about to say, presumably, normally when you see these things, they are made to fit traditional TV stands. And I know that all the imagery that they've shown so far is, has mainly been standing up. Uh, as some people would say, like a router with two pieces, white pieces of A4 paper around it. Um, but I have seen them. I have seen some images of it lying down, uh, although they're pretty scarce. Presumably, it will still fit in your TV cabinet. Just, um, I was <laughs> I was kind of looking at my own. See, most TV cabinets have fairly wide shelf. If you have an Xbox One X or a or a PlayStation Four, then you, and you have it lying down inside a TV cabinet, there will be space either side. Um, so you could probably fit your PS Five in 
just. The problem I have with that is that uh, heat is going to be an issue, real issue, because obviously you need space, good space, either side to uh, allow air to flow. If you don't have space either side, air won't flow correctly. And we're talking about a machine that will get very, very hot. It's got graphics processing in it that will get hot. Um, so I do worry about that. And to, and as my PS4 Pro already sounds like a helicopter taking off, then uh, it could be an issue. So just a final word, it is much, much taller, Huge. wider, whatever, than the current PS4, PS4 or the Xbox Xbox One. Yeah, easily. But it has, And you can tell that it's obviously been designed to stand on its end uh, more than actually go into a cabinet, similarly to the Xbox Series X. Now, what we... What we what what we originally were concerned about, and our concerns have become reality, were that uh, the spec of both of these new machines would mean that they are the equivalent of a tower PC. Well, now we know they are tower PCs. Wow. Yeah. So, if you are thinking of upgrading to a next gen machine, you also have to think about where you're going to put it. Yeah. Okay. So that's the that's the main kind of hardware reveal that we felt because we obviously knew about the controller. We knew about all the really about the inner specs. They haven't really kind of detailed anything further on that, have they? So now that we've got this power machine, this this monster that's going to sit next, probably next to your TV somewhere in your living room in a, on a podium where you just have a spotlight on it, uh, we obviously saw some of the games. Yeah, oh, and this is this is you know it, it's worth finding a space to put it because it the games look utterly stunning. Um, my particular favourite on the night, funny enough, was uh, probably not not the same as most people's. Mine was Ratchet and Clank, um, but that looked incredible. Uh, the ray tracing uh, is a technology that allows um, developers to use light in a more natural way. It, um, you basically say, here's the light source, and suddenly ray tracing does the magic for you, and it suddenly looks like the light is perfect. Now, this allows for things like um, shadows and reflections to be more natural, and my Lord, this is really properly going to affect gaming going forward. My only concern, and, and there are other games, I mean, Gran Turismo 7, all of these games look stunning. And if you go onto YouTube, you can find the trailers for all. In fact, go onto Pocket Link, you can find all the trailers. But um, the actual, the games look so stunning. The, the problem I have going forward is that they'll look so good, you won't know whether they're bad or not. Right. <laughs> and how do you, I mean, I think the ones that I thought was interesting, you know, it was it was kind of the new Spider-Man movie, which had some complication over whether it was uh, whether it was going to be a remake or, or on its own thing, something else entirely. Um, you know, the graphics do look amazing. Do you do you think that that will be? Will they just will it suffer from that same fate that sometimes the first iteration of new console game next generation console games have which is they focus so much on the graphics that the gameplay is just a bit mm. well spider-man they they opened with spider-man miles morales um which features the um the black character miles morales uh as as spider-man um if you follow the comic books he became spider-man in ultimate spider-man uh, and he's also ago. the character of uh spider-verse isn't he the yeah oh, that's superb film it's an amazing an incredible film. film um well he uh is going to take the center stage in it but what we found subsequent to the event was it's actually just a dlc add-on it's an expansion 
So the PlayStation 5 version is actually Spider-Man, the game, Marvel's Spider-Man, which came out on the PS4 last year, um, enhanced and updated, plus this add-on. What we don't know yet is whether or not Sony will also release the add-on for the PS4 version because um, there will be quite a few people that won't be able to afford a PS5, which I'm sure we'll come to in a second. But, um, yeah. I was going to say, and that leads me to the second question, which is about backwards compatibility. Xbox has really been gone out quite early on and said pretty much every game will work on the new Xbox Series X, won't it? Um, What's the the case with the PS5 and backwards compatibility there? There will be some backwards compatibility, although... um, PlayStation's only word on the subject matter at the moment is that at least a hundred PS4 games will be backward compatible, uh, uh, compatible with the PS5 at launch. Um, but they're working towards getting everything backwards compatible, or at least everything that's worth making backward compatible. That's quite a stark difference to the Xbox Series X, where every single Xbox One game, every single game you can play on your Xbox One, will work on the Xbox Series X. Um, plus, Xbox also has the the benefit of Xbox Smart Delivery, which allows you to buy Xbox One games, and if there is an enhancement somewhere down the line, uh, you can just download the enhancement for Xbox Series X when you have one. Right. So, uh, and that's for free, so you don't have to pay any more for the same game. Doesn't seem the same with PlayStation Five at present. That might be something they still announce. It's still a long time to go. And that's my final question: Is how long have we got to wait? Um, and how much well, is it going to cost? It comes, yeah, it comes out in holiday twenty twenty. There are two versions of the PS Five. That was actually a bit of a surprise. Um, there's the uh, disc based version, and there's one the digital edition, which doesn't have a disc drive, um, which makes a lot of sense to be honest. And we believe that that's to offer a cheaper version. Now we're not sure. There's been numerous leaks on the price. We're not sure right now of exactly how much it will cost um that some leaks say it'll be 599 pounds for the disc version which for me that will place the digital edition under 500 pounds um some leaks have actually said that it's even slightly cheaper and that 500 pounds is roughly the price of the disc version so you might be able mm. to get one for 399 but we'll see we'll see on that um i'm hoping it's obviously the latter but i actually think it'll be um Five nine nine pounds for the disc version and yeah, that, four nine nine for the digital edition. That makes sense, doesn't it? I, I, I don't think you can get to tower PC prices just yet of like a thousand pounds for a games console, but, but yeah, you know, absolutely. And it actually matches um, previous PlayStation console releases if you take inflation into account. Um, the uh, for example, the PlayStation Three when it first launched, it was a staggering seven hundred odd pounds if you took into account inflation. So, um, I, I you know it matches a PlayStation release strategy for me. Still to come, Cam gives us his verdict on the Casio G Shock GBD H one thousand smartwatch. I think the niche is, like we said at the beginning, that that niche and the the place it fits is within that community of people who really, really love G-Shock watches. Having worked in the augmented reality industry for over a decade, the MD of Arishi, Andrew Elia, and his team are well-placed to understand the potential AR has and what it can deliver. Over the years, the company has developed AR apps for Hugo Boss, Marks & Spencers, Johnson & Johnson, and even rock gods Led Zeppelin. But with AR struggling at the moment, with Bose cancelling its augmented reality plans and 
Magic Leap seemingly laying off thousands of staff, is there any hope for the industry? And what about Apple? Could the company, who has been rumoured to be working on a pair of AR glasses for some time, come to the rescue of the industry? I started by asking Andrew to give a quick overview of where he sees AR, VR and even MR in the market today. So we were actually the first in the UK to put uh, AR solutions together back in 2008 when wow. not many people, yeah, not many people even knew what it was. So the just to briefly the distinction between them is that AR um, takes CGI imagery and it overlays it onto live video feed. But it does a little bit more than that because what it's actually doing is hooking into real world items. So um, you might have seen many years ago uh, things where people have something that looks a bit like a QR code and you can put your phone in front of it and something you know pops up from it. Effectively what, what VR is, uh, sorry AR is, is the, um, is the union between a tracking or so, so-called markerless tracking and combining CG images so that if you had you know uh, aforementioned QR code type thing and you move it around the 3D object moves with it and it looks like it's sitting on top of the page so that's where it mixes those two worlds together whereas in something like VR the entire world is virtual and 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 you don't get any sort of um, peeps into the real world through through that process Uh, and MR really is is kind of more in uh, aligned to augmented reality in, in that it's, it's it's trying to combine both but very often it's with glasses or or that sort of thing which hopefully is a topical thing to say yeah now obviously at the moment we see you know there's a number of applications on ar apple are pushing ar through ar kit google mm-hmm. and, and stuff like that it feels that we're, we're working towards something bigger something that's not necessarily involves you just using your phone or your tablet. Do you perceive that, that you know, there's obviously rumours of glasses and stuff. Do you, do you think they will become a reality? Very much so, actually. So you may or may not be familiar with the fact that AR kit came from Apple's acquisition of a German company called Mateo several years ago. Uh, and we actually used to do a lot of work with them. So we did some work for Marks and Spencer, the first AR-enabled greetings card, in fact, several years ago. And very innovative company, very clever people. And, uh, and consequently, they caught Apple's eye. Now, Apple kept them in a bunker for a few years. And then when they broke cover and said, ta-da, here's AR kit, that's all all of the brains that, that uh, were part of Mateo's original uh, proposition. Now, at the time when we were working with them, they were already doing a proofs of concept uh, and in fact, some of the videos are still on on YouTube of things with teaching um, automotive engineers how to replace parts in a car. So there's a BMW one that's on there. And there were a few companies even back then who were developing these sort of glasses for commercial use. So there's a company called Vuzix, who, in fact, you can see they have all these things on their website mm-hmm. now for commercial applications. And, and even Epson, the people who we all know for printers, were doing that same sort of thing. So I don't think it's a huge quantum leap that this would have been on Apple's radar for a while because I'm sure that was one of the things that they could see coming along and it it is really the next logical step because something where you're talking about training aids and uh, and and generally uh, making an experience a lot more seamless than than you know waving your mobile phone at something and that you know that that's that's bound to be where it comes in next and and actually if you rewind it back to 2008 before people were even using smartphones for this they were sticking things in front of their webcam so if you look at that evolution glasses are the next logical step really 
Now, we started to see some of that evolution, as you say, with glasses, with things like Microsoft HoloLens mm -hmm. and with Magic Leaf, who seems to be a company that is brilliant at raising money but never <laughs> actually producing anything. Yeah. Do you foresee both of those entities, both of those, those businesses have gone very much for the business market? You know, I remember demoing um, Microsoft HoloLens 2 when it, it launched and I was kind of asked to put together a, 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 a cable and I was told to put together a cable in a, an aircraft wing or you know something along those lines do you perceive that if apple got into this market that it would perhaps be more focused towards the consumer and if so you know how would that work and how do you see what kind of applications do you see being useful rather than just an engineer trying to fix a, a car tire or something yeah, I think it's easy to jump to that conclusion that it's um, entirely for business because there's a very logical use case for that. And and the same kind of goes for AR as well to a, to a point. But I, I wouldn't rule it out on being a completely uh, consumer development in the future because all it's missing is is that killer app. If we talk about uh, virtuality headsets, to a degree, it's always been a bit of a novelty for people. And here's something we viewed, we recorded in 360, and here's a few token games and that sort of thing. Obviously, that's that's now evolved. But the thing that's focused a lot of people's attention is with some of these games that you can you can get for the Oculus Quest. People have have seen a very evident reason why someone would want to go for for something so they can play those particular games, and, and so I think uh, at some point people will say, well, yeah, obviously we want to, you know, play, you know, whatever mixed reality chess or or, or something like that. There will be some kind of use case that will come up for B2C audiences once people have got their hands on it, just as it has for VR and AR, um, and, and it will happen. It's, it's just that it hasn't happened yet. Now, as your experience as a developer and developing for a number of companies and, and being involved in this realm, what do, you think the, what do you think the killer apps will be that we'll start to use from a consumer point of view on a, on a device like a, an Apple Glass? Education is probably the first thing that people are going to look at. There's already some really nice tuition things which are uh, mainly for, for VR at the moment. So you can see that taking the leap across to something like this. And particularly with our uh, current COVID situation and the fact that we all have kids uh, homeschooling and, and trying to get them to um, stay on their seat is hard enough something that can give them a little bit more engagement i think is going to be a big step forward and, uh, and i think that will unlock a lot of other ideas but i think it will be between that and gaming that will that will really make it rocket but it has to be pitched in a way that makes it attractive for developers that you can you can get these ideas flowing out and it has to be at a price point that makes it palatable for people now one of the things that you know covering technology at Pocalypse over the years we've seen things come and go and 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 the promise of success and, and failure in in other places we've seen you know with vr it's been from the initial inception of what seems like decades ago but the the latest bout from a couple of years ago kind of there is some momentum but it's been very slow to, to to get into the homes you you see people excited by the demos and what's possible but you don't really hear of many people actually owning a vr headset in their house do you think the same will the same fate will will happen to ar or do you believe that there is some you know that this is going to be different this time around 
Well, it, it has actually happened to AR a couple of times. So, so back in in two thousand eight, when we did it, and you know, this was a completely new world for people. And the company we were working with at the time, a French company called Total Immersion, um, obviously that was their their choice of translation. We we did an awful lot of projects for them for for various brands, Hugo Boss and Nokia, and and goodness knows who else. And I could see the way that these solutions have been sold was very much a sort of wham bam. Flash in the pan. Here's um, here's a big pizzazz, but nothing that actually gave it a sort of longevity. So our vision was that it could be a great way of bridging a print and digital. So being able to use it to activate, you know, a back page ad in in a magazine or or something like that, so that we could kind of keep keep print uh, and some value for it. But because uh, companies like TI were, were basically pushing it as as a very much, you know, one hit and 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 to be fair, quite quite an expensive hit to the agencies and the brands, it, it, it died a death because the next time they went back and said, oh, well, let's do another AR campaign, they'd say, well, you know, we've, we've done that before. We spent a load of money, you know, mm. um, we only got a limited amount of engagement. So that's what killed it in the first instance. So it was really priced out and and burnt out the second time was arguably when when apple came in with ar kit the first time and we got our pokemon goes and things like that but again you know there wasn't really anything that that was a sustainable use of ar and and until we see that sustainable use then we're going to keep having these oh it's really exciting and then all of a sudden it goes again so and and VR has kind of tracked the same sort of thing. Except VR has been going on a lot longer because you haven't had the same requirements for device horsepower as AR has. Because AR is quite computationally expensive because you're you're doing this detection and tracking at the same time as rendering the CGI content as well. Whereas VR, you're you're, you're kind of in control of the entire environment. So VR, I think the evolution of it is is probably a little bit more interesting in that there is there is a capital expenditure in that you know you you have to invest in the hardware and getting units out there and then that there's a price point to whether it's palatable to end customers and to um, and to businesses and and um, Google Cardboard has been fantastic for you know opening people's eyes as to what's possible and and it could be argued that that's what's led to the development of you know all these these devices from you know Oculus Samsung HTC and so forth yeah we we, we again it all is down to what what applications will um, will make these things worthwhile and so do you think sort of wrapping it up do you think that that Apple is working on AR glasses that is capable of of doing that and and we will see that and if so when right so almost certainly they will be working on one whether it's one that they're going to engineer in house or whether there's going to be an acquisition or some kind of OEM i mean apple technically don't do OEMs that much i would say either there's something internally or there's an acquisition in the offing and in terms of when we're going to see it, well, I think things are obviously going to be a bit slowed down this year, engineering-wise, but I wouldn't be surprised if sometime next year we see something appear on the market. All the all the technologies in place, the the software, the expertise is all there in-house. It's just when they feel it's, it's market-ready, really. For a G-Shock fan or collector, nothing comes close to the chunky, durable, digital Casio watches. 
I've had a Mudman in my past and loved it to bits. So how do you make sure that the beloved classic stays relevant in a world of always connected mentality and smartwatches? Well, that's supposedly where the GBD H1000 Casio G-Shock watch comes in. It promises to automatically track runs, plot your route and read your heart rate without losing anything that also makes it traditional G-Shock watch that we also love. So can it deliver a modern approach without forgetting its heritage? Pocalens Cam Bunton is here to give us his verdict. So Cam, what do you think? I mean, it's pretty cool, isn't it? It's like, it's for a G-Shock owner, collector, lover, it's one of those things where you get to have everything that makes a G-Shock a G-Shock, but then you get the added benefit of being able to go out and track your runs and see a map and do your heart rate and just regular daily steps and activities. It's so it's a pretty good compromise because it's not it's not your full smartwatch, but it's not missing loads. Although obviously it does miss a few features. So let's just start back at the beginning for people yeah. that are aware of G-Shock. They're obviously nice, big, bulky. They're very iconic in their design. There's hundreds of design. Does it keep that that appeal? Is there anything that's been lost in that process by it becoming smart? No, not that I can see. I mean, it still has that digital monochrome LCD reflective panel. It still has, you know, the backlight that's just blue, two blue little LEDs on yep. one side of the screen that lights it up. You can either set that to come automatically when you raise your wrist or press the light button. It's got loads of buttons around the outside with labels telling you what all the buttons do and what their secondary functions are. So when you look at it and when you when you watch it, looking at the time and looking at the actual design of the watch, it still very much looks like and feels like a digital watch and a G-Shock one. Now, this is mainly focused towards the way we've spoken about this is mainly fo focused towards using it for running and, and things like that. Does it have any other smart functionalities? Can you get your messages on there, for example? Yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty basic. Um, if you remember back to like the very, the very first smartwatches like Pebble, where you can just yeah. read your notifications on the screen. So you get a bleep, like a classic digital watch bleeps, and then you get a little pop-up notification on the digital screen and you can read the message. Uh, but unlike Apple Watch and Wear OS, you can't reply or interact with the notification. You can just read it. Um, so you can see, basically, you see if it's important. And if you want to read it properly and reply, then obviously you need to pick your phone up and do it that way. Now, is there anything that you didn't like or felt that it needed more of? Um, I mean, if it's going to compete with the likes of Garmin and Apple Watch, it needs more tracking modes because as it stands, it really is just a running watch. You You set it to go running and then you can run, but you can't set things like weightlifting workouts. You can't do like HA... IT or biking or indoor cycling or anything like that. It's literally, it's just uh, running. So if that's all you do, then you're going to love it because a lot of traditional runners would prefer to use a digital watch anyway because that's what they're used to. Um, but that's that's really all it does in that regard. And how do you think it compares to, you know, who's going to buy this? And how do you think it compares to sort of a more, you know, a Polo or a Garmin or, or something along those lines? I mean, in terms of like uh, accuracy, it compares really well. I compared it with a few different watches that I've tested over the last few months, and it seems to track heart rate and distance and cadence just as well as any of them. Uh, but the one thing that you will get on the Casio that you don't get on any of the others is ridiculously long battery life. It's got solar power. So Casio says if you leave it in the sun for two hours a week, that's going to give you enough charge to keep the watch going basically forever, um, as long wow. as you don't do 
too long of running sessions here and there, but I didn't manage to drain the battery once, not even close. Um, but you can, I mean, you can plug it in if you want to, but the battery just goes on and on and on and on. <laughs> it's crazy. But then you kind and, of expect that from a digital watch, I guess. It's a long-lasting battery. Yeah, and if and so from a point of view of who's it aimed at, would you? Yeah. You know, where where does this kick in? Because it it obviously you know there's lots of challenges out there. There's obviously Apple yeah. Watch, which does a lot more. There's all the Wear OS stuff, which obviously you know for Android users that yeah. gives you kind of a lot of functionality. And then you've got the very good Garmin uh, Garmin running watches, Fitbit. I mean, it's a very crowded crowded market. It is, and I think. I think the niche is, like we said at the beginning, that, that niche and the, the place it fits is within that community of people who really, really love G-Shock watches or maybe runners who are a bit more traditionalist and have always used a digital watch and don't want to move to a smartwatch. Um, you still get everything that makes it a digital watch, except you have this added capability of being able to track your run and then see the map and, and judge your data and speed and everything afterwards on your phone. Um, so I think that's where it fits. I think it's a very, very small niche, but I think for that little chunk of users who want that kind of watch, I think it fits really, really well. And I suppose the, the big question is, uh, will you carry on wearing it or are you happy when they come and pick it up again? <laughs> I mean, I, I do miss a lot of the fitness tracking features that come with other watches, if I'm honest, because I don't just run. I'm not a pure runner. Um, so I, I've got my Apple Watch back on now because I track my age, I, my high intensity interval kettlebell workouts, for instance, with my Apple Watch. Um, but yeah, I think if they added more in terms of workouts, like I said earlier, I think it would be something that would be really, really difficult to, to give up. Yeah. And do you think that's possible? Is it from a software perspective, would that be possible for them to, to add that? Or is it, do you think there's a limitation there? Um, I, I can see it being possible. The only difficulty they have is if you look around the bezel and the design and the labels on the watch, it says run on the button. So it literally, it tells you what that physical button is for and that's its job, um, to track your run. So, um, they might be able to change the software, but obviously they can't change the physical labels without bringing out a newer model. I don't think. Well, that's it for this week's show. Thanks for listening until next time. Pip pip. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.